I am going to pray, but before I do that, do you ever just wonder, how do you pray in a time like this? And so what I found helpful is when I really don't know how to pray, one of the best ways to pray is to pray the way Jesus taught us to pray. And so I'm going to do that with you and, and also show you just a great way to pray. Let's pray. Our Father who is in heaven. Good morning, Father. We're so glad we have a heavenly Father. And good morning, Jesus. We're so glad we have you as our big brother. Good morning, Holy Spirit. We're so glad that you've given us a foretaste of what to come. And, and you're the one that assures us we really do have a Father and big brother. Welcome. Hallowed be your name. In our worship service, in our preaching, in our lives this week, may we exalt your name and not ours. Your kingdom come. Holy Spirit, help us to see the beauty of King Jesus and follow him this week. May we share the gospel of the kingdom with others. May your kingdom grow. And King Jesus, we look forward to that day when you come back and your kingdom comes in all of its fullness. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Holy Spirit, fall fresh on us. May we do your will on earth and may others see and join us. Give us this day our daily bread. Lord, so many of us, financial needs, being laid off, struggles at work, you know our financial needs meet our needs as, as individuals and families and as a church. Physical needs for the sick, we pray you would bring healing for the well that you would keep us from getting sick. Boys, we spend more time in our homes with people we love. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Help us to be both forgiven and forgiving people. We pray that you would not lead us into temptation and that you would deliver us from evil, deliver us from the evil that's within us, our flesh, the evil around us in the world, the evil above us, and the evil one. And we pray as we open your word together today that you would teach us, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. It's not fun getting old. Uh, reminded me of a little girl who asked her grandmother, asked the grandmother, Grandma, were you on Noah's Ark? And the grandma said, no. And the little girl said, well, how did you survive the flood then? Okay, okay, it's really bad to tell a joke to, uh, to an empty room, but uh, I, I thought it would be good to have a little laughter. I thought it was funny at least. Listen, I'm getting old, but I'm not as old as Noah. But this is our first week that we get to spend with my friend Noah. Uh, Noah's a friend of mine, he's one of my heroes, and we spent a week and we learned how Noah walked with God by faith and how important it is that we too walk with God by faith. And then Noah gave us some great advice. He said, obeying God is always the best choice, and we're learning how important obedience is. And last week, Noah shared with us what he learned in the flood, that God is faithful, and uh, he is. And this week, he's sharing with us that God is a promise keeper. Today, we're going to learn that our God is a promise keeper. Now, I know some of you thinking, really learning about Noah at a time like this? And, and I thought about speaking on something different, but I want to show you a verse. In Hebrews 4, verse 12, 
we read, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrows, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The more time I spent with Noah, the more time I spent in Genesis 9 this week, the more convinced I was that God's word really is living, and, and you're going to be amazed at how relevant Genesis 9 is for our lives today. So let me get you up to date a little bit where we are. Where we are in the book of Genesis, we're walking through it this year. The earth, the earth is all new. The old earth has been destroyed. There's a new earth. But man's heart, after the flood, man's heart remains unchanged. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to Genesis 9, verse 1. <clears throat> and if you don't, you can follow on the screens. Starting in verse 1, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God's starting all over, and it sounds amazingly like in the beginning when God told Noah uh, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Starting all over on a new earth, God says the same to Noah and his sons. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hands they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is the blood. Now before the flood, God had given plants for man to eat, but now God says you can eat animals too. And why is that? That's a good question. I don't really know, but perhaps harsher conditions after the flood that animal protein perhaps could help us to, to handle the harsher conditions. But what strikes me here is how much it was like Adam. With Adam, God says you can eat of all the trees. It was all yeses and only one note. Don't eat from the one tree. Of course they did. And here again, God says you can eat all the plants, you can eat all the animals, but don't eat the animal with its blood. Blood's pretty significant in the Bible. It, it represents life. And, and one day Christ would shed his blood. He would give his life for us. Surely I will require your lifeblood. From every beast I will require it. And from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. Now, once again, just like we saw several other times, God reminds us that people are unique because we alone are made in the image of God. We're different from other creatures who are made in the image of God. So all human life has value. Whether we're unborn or elderly or have special needs, all human life has great value. And since human life is sacred and we're made in God's image, and since before the flood... Human life was very cheap and there was a lot of violence. God establishes the civil government. God establishes a new institution, the civil government, to make sure that the earth doesn't get as bad and as violent as it was before the flood. So listen, God established the civil government. Did you know that? And did you know we're in election year? And here's my question for you. I'd love for you to know, if the civil government can only do one thing for you, 
what would you like the civil government to do? Only one thing, what would you like? Now I know some of you keep, say, keep saying, well, Smiley, why do you keep saying civil government, civil government? And here's the reason why. A couple of hundred years ago, no one would just ever say government. And the reason people would never say government is because they knew there were many kinds of government. There is self-government, and that's the most important kind. Because the more self-government that we have, the less external government that we need. So there's self-government. And then there is family government. I mean, there are parents in the home, right? And then there is church government. Good News Church is a Presbyterian church. That means that we have elders who help govern the church. So there's self, family, church, and then there's the civil government. And with the civil government, there is local and state and national. So God established the civil government, and God gave a purpose to the civil government. Know what it is? The purpose of the civil government was to restrain human nature, to restrain human nature because people are sinful and because human life is precious. God established the civil government to restrain human nature nature so that human life would be valued. Did you see that in verse 6? Whoever sheds man's blood, that if someone would dare to murder someone else and take their life by man, not revenge, by man, by the civil government, his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. So the purpose, the purpose of civil government is to restrain human nature and the power, the power that God has given the civil government is the sword, the power of life and death to wield that sword to restrain human nature and protect human life. God established capital punishment after the flood to protect human life. Now, what about in the New Testament? Does the New Testament teach that? The New Testament teaches the same thing. In Romans chapter 13, the Apostle Paul is teaching about how the civil government is God's gift to mankind. And so in Romans 13, 3, we read, For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it, the civil government, is a minister of God to you for good. The civil government is God's gift to you for good, but if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. It doesn't have the power of life and death for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. And so Paul writes that if you drive 95 on I-95, then you fear the civil government, right? Because it does not bear the sword for nothing. But if you drive 70 on 95, you might get hit from the back, but you don't fear the police because you're obeying the law, right? So listen, if the civil government could do one thing for me, I mean, when I vote for people, what matters most to me is I want to vote for people who want to do what God established the civil government to do, which is to restrain human nature to protect us and to use the sword for that. And so I'm glad we have police. I mean, 
You can't imagine what our society would be like without police. They're there to restrain human nature. And also, I'm very thankful that we have armed forces who have power to defend us from those who would do us harm. So, after the flood, God establishes the civil government uh, to restrain human nature, gives the civil government the power of the sword. But I want you to understand God also will establish the church. The church is also God's institution, and the church is different from the civil government. God gives the church a purpose. The purpose of the church is to remedy human nature, to remedy human nature, and the power given to the church, it's not political power, the power given to the church is spiritual power, it's the gospel. The gospel is the power of God to remedy human nature. It's the power of God to change human nature. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So think through that a little bit. Sometimes people will ask me, well, Smiley, would you like for abortion to be illegal? Well, of course I would like it to be illegal. And that's something our civil government can do. The civil government can make abortion illegal. But I want to go way beyond that. The gospel can make it unthinkable. What I long for abortion to be is not simply illegal, but unthinkable. And when people believe in Jesus, and Jesus changes their heart, and they realize that all human beings are made in the image of God, abortion's not something that's just illegal, it becomes unthinkable. Now, someone might say, well, well Smiley, should we always obey the civil government? And that's a good question. Should we always obey the civil government? We should always obey the civil government unless the civil government calls us to directly disobey God. One more time, we want to obey the civil government except in those places where the civil government would ask us to directly disobey God. Let me give you an example. In the book of Acts, the apostles and Peter are preaching the gospel. And the religious authorities say, stop preaching the gospel. Stop preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Peter, we read in Acts 5, verse 29, But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. So there is a place for civil disobedience when the authorities commanded Peter and the apostles, not to preach the gospel, they said, no, we must obey God rather than men. So, what we're learning about in, in Genesis is what we're practicing this week. If the civil government had called good news and said, don't meet because we're trying to stop the spread of the gospel, we would join Peter and we would join the apostles and say, we must obey God rather than for men. But when the civil government tells us not to meet, to stop the spread of a disease, the spread of a virus, that's something we comply to because we believe that's in keeping with what God would want us to do and show love for God and love for our neighbor. Got it? Okay, okay, back to Genesis. We've learned then to keep the world from being as violent as it was before the flood. God established the civil government gave it a purpose to restrain human nature and a power, the sword, to, to wield to protect human life. We continue. 
As for you, be fruitful and multiply. Populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. Repeating verses 1 and 2, repeating what God had said in Genesis 1, once again God says, as for you, be fruitful, multiply. Notice this, populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. And it seems when people love God, they multiply. But there are so many in our culture, and they don't love God, and they don't love people made in the image of God. And so they're saying, oh, there's too many people, too many people. It's not what God says. Notice what he says. Populate the earth with people. They're made in his image, and God loves people. And multiply in it. And isn't that what Jesus told us to do, to go and make disciples of all the nations? to go and multiply disciples who multiply disciples until the world is one. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. See the word covenant? That word will be used seven times in the next few verses. A covenant is a binding promise. And the way God deals with his people is always in a covenant relationship. And this covenant, the Noahic covenant, is, is, with, is an eternal covenant. He said it's with you and your descendants after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth, I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood. Never shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. And so the promise that God is making is never to destroy the earth again with a flood. Not that there wouldn't be local floods, but there wouldn't be a mabul, a worldwide catastrophic flood. To assure Noah and to assure us, God gives a sign of this covenant. Then God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I set my bow in the cloud. The rainbow is the sign of God's covenant set in the bow that we could look at and remember God's covenant promise and that God could look at and remember his promise. I set my bow in the cloud and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant. Isn't that interesting? We look at the covenant and remember, but sometimes we forget God looks at the covenant and remembers too. Between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth, and God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. I think those of us who know that the rainbow is the sign of God's covenant, we look at that and we remember and it's nice but we don't realize what it meant to Noah. Listen, the first time Noah saw a cloud, the first time Noah saw rain, it was a worldwide catastrophic storm. It was judgment on man's sin. And listen, 
Man's heart was unchanged. People were still sinful. If God had not put the cloud in the sky the first time Noah saw the clouds, he would have thought he's doing it again. He's going to destroy the world again. See, I believe that Noah and his family at this moment were suffering from PTSD. You know, they were suffering from post-traumatic stress syndrome. Let me illustrate it. I have some friends. I have some friends who were in Homestead, Florida when Hurricane Andrew hit. And let me tell you, that was a traumatic event in their life. And when they hear the word hurricane, you know what they do? They get in their cars and they flee the state of Florida as fast as they can because they believe they're going to be wiped out again just like they were in Andrew. So listen, God put a bow in the clouds. And when Noah and his family looked at it, they could realize it can rain without being a worldwide flood. Listen, though we deserve God's wrath, God is gracious and merciful to us. And oh, how the rainbow comforted Noah and his family. Should be us too, right? When we look at, the cov- when we look at that, we can remember God is a covenant keeper, isn't he? That God has kept this promise for four thousand years. God can be trusted. Now the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. Look at that again, that all of us have come from the three sons of Noah. We've all come from Noah and his wife. Doesn't that make racism silly, doesn't it? That we would somehow think we're better than others because of our race? We're all one family, aren't we? Oh, we all come from Noah and his family. We all come from Adam and Eve. We're all part of the human race. Recently, recently I had to fill out a form about being on a federal jury on being part of a federal jury and and I had to fill out this thing and it had race on there and I so longed for the days that Martin Luther King Jr. talked about when men are judged not by the color of their skin but by their character and so on this form it had race and I didn't want to check race so I checked other race but when I tried to to do it it wouldn't let me it came back with a red I had to put something on there so what I put on there very biblical I put, I was a part of a chosen race, and they accepted that. Because that's what the Bible says. It says to us as Christians, you are a chosen race. That's where my identity is. How about you? And listen, I'm part of a chosen race, and I'm a part of the human race, because we've all come from Noah and his wife and, and their three sons. Then Noah began farming and planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. (laughs) Oh, I love that a whole year on the ark with the animals and his family, and he gets off, and he gets drunk, and he gets naked. Uh, Can you blame him? I mean, what would you do if you were shut up uh, with your family for a whole year? I mean, it's been like a weekend. It's been pretty hard, huh? Oh, notice the word wine first time the word wine occurs in the Bible. Notice the word drunk. This is the first time. Isn't it interesting? The first time wine and drunk, they went together. And and then he got naked. I know someone else. I know someone else. And there was wine and there was getting drunk and there was getting naked. But I'm not going to tell that story today. It was a long, long time ago. 
But someday I'll come back and tell that story, okay? So let's look at this, wine. What does the Bible teach about wine? What does the Bible teach about alcohol? What does it teach? And what does it talk about being drunk? The, the Bible says a lot about alcohol, and, it, and it's kind of mixed. Sometimes the Bible speaks about the good things about alcohol. It says that a little bit of alcohol makes the, makes the fa- face glad. And wasn't Jesus' first miracle done at a wa- wedding, wasn't it? His first miracle was done at a wedding to keep the party going. But the, all, the Bible also warns us about alcohol, doesn't it? I mean, the Bible warns us, it says, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, that when people get drunk, they do things and say things they would never do if they hadn't. And isn't that what happened here? Didn't Noah let his guard down? And didn't Noah drink too much? And when Noah became drunk, didn't he do things that he never would have done before? This reminds me, this reminds me, you know, that, uh, that we have one Savior, Jesus, and many heroes. Listen, there is only one person, only one good person. His name is Jesus. And that means all the heroes that we have in life, listen, they are flawed people. Noah was a flawed people, a person. And it's so important for us to understand that. I just finished reading a really good book called The Coddling of an American Mind. The Coddling of an American Mind, and it deals with untruths in our culture. And one of the untruths of our culture is that, that people are divided into good people and bad people. One of the untruths of our culture is we're divided into good people and bad people. And good people, everything they do is good. And bad people, everything, everything they do is bad, and that's not true. The line between good and evil runs between, through all of us. And sometimes we make good choices, and sometimes we make bad choices. And so we have someone like Martin Luther. Martin Luther is one of my heroes. He's the one who started the Protestant Reformation, a man of great courage who taught that we're justified by faith alone, that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Way to go! But Martin Luther also was anti-Semitic. He didn't like Jewish people. He was just wrong there. I don't want to defend him. I don't want to defend the indefensible. He also wanted to take the book of James and throw it out of the Bible. He was just wrong. I don't want to defend the indefensible. In the same way, Noah's a friend of mine. Noah's a hero of mine. He got many things right. He walked with God by faith, and we should too. He obeyed God and set us a great example, and we should follow that. And he also drank too much, and he also got drunk, and he also got naked. And you know, we shouldn't follow his example there. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father And he told his two brothers outside. So Ham sees his father's nakedness, and then he comes and tells his brother. He's not informing them this is gossip. Gossip. He's delighting in making fun of his father. You guys ought to see dad, that spiritual giant. You know what? He's drunk. Dad is drunk, and dad is naked. Oh, how he's disgraced himself. Listen, when we see a Christian brother... Our sister fall, we should never rejoice. We should be broken hearted, right? 
I mean, we shouldn't be surprised our heroes in the Bible fell too, right? We should learn from them falling not to do the same, but we should never delight in it. That's what Ham did. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned away so that they did not see their father's nakedness. They responded very differently. They covered the nakedness of their father. And doesn't that remind you a bit of God covering the nakedness of, of Adam and Eve? <clears throat> when Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. So he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants he shall be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servants. Noah becomes a prophet and he prophesies the future of, of Ham and his descendants and Shem and Japheth and their descendants. And what exactly it means when he cursed Ham and his descendants and, and blessed Shem and Japheth. Uh, I'm not sure all of it. Uh, there's a lot of different ideas out there, but a couple of things I'm sure of. One thing I know when he blessed Shem is that Jesus would come from the family of Shem. The Savior would come from Shem's family. The second thing I know is that Ham and Shem and Japheth, their actions didn't just affect them. They affected their children and their children and their children. When we make choices, our actions don't just affect us. They affect our children and our children's children and our children's children's children, right? <clears throat> Noah lived 350 years after the flood, so all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. And so what we learn in chapter 9 is that God is a covenant keeper, that God is a promise keeper. The promise he made to Noah not to destroy the earth, even though we deserve to be destroyed by a flood, he has kept for 4,000 years. So listen, God is a promise keeper. That's what we've learned. And what I want you to do this week is I want you to learn to trust in the promise keeper. Trust in the promise keeper. A lot of the things we've been trusting in Listen, they've fallen apart, haven't they? I mean, I love sports, but I can't watch sports. And, and listen, my retirement account, it's disappeared when you trust in stocks. So why not? Why not trust in the promise keeper? And when I talk about trust in the promise keeper, I want you to trust in the promise keeper for tomorrow, for tomorrow, for the future, okay? And, and what do I mean by that? We sang it earlier. But here's the promise that God has made to us about the future, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Listen, God has promised that he's not going to destroy the earth with a flood. But listen, God has also promised that one day soon Jesus is coming back and there's going to be a judgment day, and the earth as we know it now is going to be destroyed with fire, and it's going to be remade. And if we want it to go well for us in the future, if we want it to go well for us in the judgment day, this verse says we need to believe in Jesus. Because if we believe in Jesus, then we're not going to perish, but, but have eternal life. 
So here's why it's so important to believe in Jesus. The bad news of the gospel is we have a problem called sin. We've all sinned. Some of us, like Noah, have had too much to drink and we've gotten drunk. Others of us, we've been like Ham and we've, we've made fun of others, right? But listen, all of us have sinned. There's only one good person. It's not us. We've all sinned against God and we're in big trouble. But the good news is there is one good person. There is a Savior. His name is Jesus. For God, He didn't just love the world. For God so loved the world that He gave, not a, not a teacher, He gave a Savior. He gave His only begotten Son, God the Son, put on flesh, came to earth, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for our sins, rose. Why? That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So that those who would believe in Jesus would be forgiven of their sins and get to do life with and for Jesus now and life with and for Jesus forever. Have you believed? If you haven't, won't you? Won't you trust in the promise keeper for tomorrow that you could live forever, that it would go well with you on the judgment day? Well, how do we believe in Jesus? It really is as simple as A, B, C, where we admit, believe, and commit. It starts when we admit, Jesus, I've sinned against you. Like Noah, I've sinned. And, and like Ham, I've sinned. We all have. And then we believe, Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross for my sins and rose. And then we commit to Jesus as Savior. Jesus, come in and be my Savior and forgive me and give me eternal life. And then I want you to be Lord of my life. From this day forward, as you give me strength, I will follow you. Won't you? And listen, if you have, listen to what Jesus says. He says we have eternal life that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Our eternity is secure. So we've trusted Jesus for tomorrow. Let's learn to trust him for today. Because eternal life doesn't begin when we die. It begins the moment we put our trust in him. We get to do life with Jesus today. So since we trust Jesus for tomorrow, let's learn this week to trust him for today. Listen to this promise he makes us. <clears throat> this week, when everything changes, remember this, Romans 8, 28 and 29, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Here's the promise God makes to us. See how it says, and we know. It's not that we think. It's not that we hope. And we know. And what is the problem? That God is on his throne. Nothing comes into our life that doesn't come through his hands. And God's promise is that he will cause all things, the good things, the bad things, all things, what? To work together for good. For everyone? No. To those who love God, to those who put their faith in Jesus, to those who are called according to his purpose. So, <clears throat> this week, many things will come into our life. Some of us, we've been laid off from work, right? Well, some of us are sick. Some of us this week might get sick. When these things happen, God has made a promise. He's not asleep. He's not forgotten us. These things have come through his hand. 
He's also made us a promise that he's going to use all those things for our good, for our good. But what is that good that he's working for? He tells us, for those whom he foreknew, he knew and loved you long before you knew and loved him. He also predestined, he saved you, listen, to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would have, be the firstborn among many brethren. His promise, everything that comes into our life, if we look to him, he will use them to make us more and more like Jesus. Remember, difficult things this week or even good things, he's working in them to make us like Jesus. Secondly, He's using them to expand his family, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Jesus is at work in these difficult times, in all that comes into our life, making us more like Jesus and expanding his family. <clears throat> and some of you say, yes, yes, but how? Let me illustrate it for you a little bit. Some of you know the story. Remember Joseph? Remember Joseph? <clears throat> how he told his brothers that God told him one day they would all bow down and worship him. So he thought it would be a great idea to tell his brothers this, that one day they would bow down to worship him. They didn't like the idea. They sold him as a slave to Egypt, and, and then Israel would eventually go to Egypt. And when his brothers found out that Joseph was alive, they were scared. And then daddy died, and his brothers were filled with fear. They were afraid that Joseph was going to kill them. But Joseph understood this promise. Remember what Joseph said? Remember? Joseph said, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. God did this to preserve Israel. So listen, Joseph's brothers made sinful choices and did something horrible, but God worked through their choices to preserve Israel so that we would be here today. Or what about the cross? <clears throat> What about the cross? Remember Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost? Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost said, Jesus died according to the predetermined plan of God. Jesus died at the right time on the Passover for our sins. But Peter also said, you nailed him to the cross by the hands of sinful men. So sinful men making sinful choices accomplished God's purpose of saving us. That's how God works all things for our good. Even the death of Christ, even the sinful choices of men to conform us to the image of Christ and to expand his family. A little closer to home, my wife Karen, between her junior and senior year in college, she was supposed to spend the summer at Yellowstone National Park. She was supposed to spend the summer there working in that park, but she got mono and she had to go home to Fort Lauderdale, and I was in Boca Raton, and because she didn't go there, well, well wait a minute. Isn't, isn't mono the kissing disease? Hey, Karen, where did, you, where did you get mono? But listen, that mono that she got is what moved her back to Fort Lauderdale, and we met that Sunday, summer, and that's how we were married, and, and this is kind of the rest of the story. But listen, when she got mono, why am I being kept from working at Yellowstone? How did this terrible thing happen to me? And yet, at least from my perspective, God took something like mono and used it for our good. Perhaps my favorite example of God working all things for our good to conform us and to expand his family happened in communist China. 
The communist government has gone through different purges of Christianity where they've tried to stamp out Christianity. And in one particular purge, they came up with this great idea. The way to get rid of Christianity was to arrest all the pastors and make them garbage men and have them go and, and distribute the, I mean, collect garbage throughout China. <clears throat> because is there anything lower? Is there anything lower than being a garbage man? Yet God took their evil intent and used it to be perhaps the greatest evangelistic strategy in the history of the world that as these pastors were sent out throughout the countryside in China, what they did every day was they collected garbage and they shared the gospel. What man meant for evil, God used for good, and millions of people came to faith in Christ. Can you even imagine what God is up to today and in, in what we're going through? But what we know is that God is at work conforming us to the image of Christ and expanding his family. So this week, this week, trust in the promise keeper, okay? Trust in the promise keeper for tomorrow. We don't have to fear tomorrow because the best is yet to come. And then trust in the promise keeper for today. When things come into our life and they make no sense, Let's trust the promise and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so glad that you are our Savior, that you came to save us, that you did all things well, that you were perfect, that you obeyed God in all things, that you died on the cross for our sins, that you rose, that you offer us eternal life. Thank you. And listen, if you've never trusted Jesus for tomorrow, won't you trust him for tomorrow? Won't you? Won't you believe in him for eternal life today? Won't you admit to him? Jesus, I've sinned against you and I'm sorry. And won't you believe, Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for my sins and rose. And won't you commit to him? Jesus, I want you to come into my life and, and be my savior and give me eternal life. Forgive me of all my sins. I want you to be Lord of my life. And from this day forward, as you give me strength, I will follow you all the days of my life. Well, if you've done that for the first time, won't you let us know? We'd love to celebrate with you. Tell someone it'll make Jesus more real to you. Jesus, I pray for all of us who've trusted you for tomorrow that we would trust that this week and realize the best is yet to come. And Lord, I pray this week we would learn to trust you for today. For today, when good things come, when difficult things, may we trust you that these have come through your hands. And may we use, see them in our lives being used to make us more like you. And Lord, may we see they've come into our lives to help expand your family. May we this week point others toward you and see many come to faith in you. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks for being with us online. We look forward to being with you online next week as well. Let me send you out with a blessing. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.